Welcome to the Payments Podium Podcast, hosted by the payments professor himself, Kevin Olson. This podcast discusses the past, present, and the possibilities of the payments industry. Here's the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Payments Podium. I'm the payments professor, Kevin Olson, and I am so glad to bring to you today a discussion on Regulation E. I know we've had it on the podcast before, you know, but we're going to go back in. I've got an expert on Reg E with me today, and well, I'm going to let her introduce yourself. Diana, would, would you like to say hi to everybody and tell us who you are? Hello, everyone. My name is Diana Kern, and I do client training. I am a trainer, client learning team uh, representative with the Shazam Network. And Shazam is a, well, we have a couple of different lines of business, really. We are a payments association, and we are an EFT network and processor. And really what that means is back in the mid-70s, when electronic payments were in their infancy and first becoming a thing and being born, and there were ATM cards before we had MasterCard or Visa branded debit cards, Shazam was a payment association to be a trade association in the ACH payments industry, which then has expanded to all types of electronic payments. I'm wearing today my Shazam Payments Association shirt. And so then the other line of business beyond the trade association for electronic payments is Shazam, the EFT network and processor. We're based in central Iowa and we have clients all over the United States. And I have been training here doing client learning And in addition to training or speaking to or educating the Shazam client base that we have, I also do industry engagement. So I would imagine that if you have financial institutions that listen to your podcast, some of them may have heard me before on a webinar that I do for a couple of different companies that do industry webinars throughout the U.S. And I've been training here at Shazam. This is kind of scary when I think about it. I'm almost going to hit my 26th year of training here at Shazam. So I've seen a whole lot happen in the industry going back to 1995 up until now. So thank you for having me, Kevin. Oh, absolutely. And you mentioned, okay, with Shazam, you do a lot as a payment association and a network processor. And today we were going to discuss Regulation E. And I can see from both sides where you you get a lot of work and a lot of experience. And you've mentioned you got a lot of experience with Reg E. Just real quick, can we explain to people listening what is Regulation E? You know, if you were to give the elevator speech on, hey, here's Regulation E, this is what it is, this is who it applies to. Uh, That's an interesting question because it's one of those that I feel like a lot of people in the consumer population they kind of have this inkling in their mind of how, hey, I'm not responsible for anything. So from the financial institution perspective, Regulation E is the implementation of the Electronic Funds Transfer Act. It goes back to the mid-70s. And essentially, it's a consumer protection regulation. So if you have a consumer-owned account, a DDA, let's say, and you have electronic transactions on your account, ACH, debit card transactions primarily, those transactions, if they turn out to have some sort of a quote error, and I would imagine that we'll get in more deeply into error later in this conversation, but if you as a consumer have a problem with one of those electronic transactions on your account, you seek out your financial institution and say, hey, I need some help with this. And that's where Reggie comes in. 
Okay, you you already said it. You said error. Now, one of the things is I I gotta say when I first got into payments years ago, even I was like error. So I was like, oh, so if you know the machines make a mistake, then that means that that's an error, and then that has to be fixed. But error means a lot more than that type of scenario, doesn't it? So if we say error in Reg E, well, what's an error? The most common error that I get asked about, because I do training and, and uh, education for the industry and Shazam clients on both debit cards and ACH transactions. And when I get asked about an error, the most common one that people are talking about, even if they may not use the word, is unauthorized. Some claim that the consumer is making that there is no authorization or that it was fraud, if you want to use a different term. And that happens a lot in the debit card industry. In the ACH industry, we also have unauthorized debit transactions. But to expand the scope into what the, it's actually subsection 11. So uh, there's a, a website, there are a ton of websites on Reg E. And, you know, I have my favorite that I provide to people all the time if they want to read the verbatim language of the reg. But subsection of the reg starts off in the error resolution procedures with specifically defining seven definitions of an error. And the ones that really, really play into the education that I do, in addition to unauthorized, there's the omission of an EFT, which that could be a credit transaction. You're expecting a credit return from a merchant and it doesn't happen. And so that can be an error. An incorrect EFT, potentially a duplicate EFT, those are really the top ones. But if you go look at the reg and start right at the beginning of subsection 11, it's boom, 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 one through seven, what those definitions of an error are. Well, I just think it's great. I mean, you've done a good job of explaining what an error is. But when I talk to, you know, the layman, the person on the street and tell them, oh, so you've had an error. They're like, oh, no, no, I didn't have an error. Uh, just somebody took money out of my account. And I'm like, well, well that, that's an error for the way we look at it. Now, you've mentioned, too, when it comes to Reggie, because what I want to get to is what does Reggie apply to? Where does it actually affect? And you've already mentioned like ACH and debit cards. Are there other payments? Because I've heard EFT come out a couple of times. But the, are there other payments? that Reg E applies to? Like, for example, does it apply to something like Zelle or does it apply to our faster payments like RTP? It does apply to any transaction that meets the coverage, the section in the reg that has all of the coverage in it and what the definition of electronic funds transfer is. And so I'm actually looking at that subsection three of the reg itself that talks about coverage. And electronic tr funds transfer is paragraph B there, and it literally verbatim walks through what it means to be an EFT. Point of sale transfers, automated teller machines, direct deposit. But the more generic definition says any transfer of funds that is initiated through an electronic terminal, telephone, computer, or magnetic tape for the purpose of ordering, instructing, or authorizing a financial institution to debit or credit a consumer's account. That's a pretty broad definition, in my opinion. Anything that is not paper-based that could fall into that electronic category of being initiated through a card, even mobile devices where a debit card is being used as a payment mechanism versus a physical card. 
all of that, I think, is a very broad definition. And that generally goes back to when the reg was first written. There have not been a lot of updates to the reg through the years to try to encompass all the different little nuances of payment mechanisms, third-party payment apps, fintech apps, and so forth that have kind of emerged in the industry in the last five years or so. So it, it still has that very broad definition. Well, and so people understand this is written in the 70s, correct? That, that we're taking something from the 70s and we're applying it to 2000 or yeah 2021 wow all right that that's that just seems like wow how can we do that and and i love too that you said you're reading it from the screen but i know you're you're just as bad as me when it comes to being a payments geek and have most of these things about memorized but you put it on screen just to make sure we don't get anything incorrect so those of you who are out there listening though that that's a lot of things that reggie falls under and a lot of things that reggie applies too. And I've been getting more and more questions though with people coming in and going, so does it apply to faster payments? Does So, I mean, one of the things is that people say is, well, what if it's a faster payment versus a slower payment? <laughs> so what if it, you know, does that make a difference? And I think you clarified it doesn't as long as it's an EFT. And the reality is, haven't debit cards for years been pretty fast payments themselves? Absolutely. And at Shazam, we definitely are trying to make sure that the industry is educated about the fact that there are a lot of payments that have existed for a long time that are relatively quick. So when we think about, and, and the phrase faster payments has been a phrase that's used a lot in the payments industry in the last, I don't know, five, eight, or, or even longer years. You know, we can go back and find evidence of people talking about faster payments even before that, although it's become a more ubiquitous term to use to refer to, you know, the RTP, the real-time payments that the clearinghouse has and FedNow and so forth. But a debit card transaction, you're absolutely right, Kevin. If somebody uses their debit card at the point of sale today or at an ATM today, as long as there's a real-time connection to the financial institution that issued that card and to the, the core platform on which that DDA is housed, that is technically an instantaneous or real-time or a faster payment, whatever you want to call it. So when we talk about faster payments, I think it's really important to understand, and, and this is Diana's opinion, my opinion is that that's a very broad umbrella category, and there are a whole bunch of actual payment technologies that can fit into that, debit cards being one of them, the FedNow service that's coming being one of them, the clearinghouse's real-time payments being one of them them. You could even say that same day ACH is a faster payment too. So be careful. That's kind of what I caution people there. Oh, well, faster payments this, faster payments that. Okay, now let's be specific about which actual payment rails we're talking about when it comes to that faster payment. And are we talking about faster to hit the consumer's account? Debit cards, as I just explained, when there's that real-time connection to the card issuing financial institution's core platform, yeah, that's a quote real-time payment because that's going to memo post on the consumer's account. On the back end though, from a settlement perspective, between the network or processor that was gateway for that transaction and the financial institution that issued the card and the hard posting and the settlement and all of that that happens behind the scenes, is that real-time? Probably not in 2021, but to the consumer, it's a faster payment. 
it's pretty much an instantaneous payment if they go look at their online banking system and see that memo posted item there as a pending item. Yeah, and people get blown away when they find out the reality versus the what the expectation, I think, is a lot of it, too, because the perception of the consumer is, hey, it just took place instantaneous. Yeah, for you, we make it look that way, but it may not have actually happened that way. Now, one of the things that I think is important, too, if we have an error, if we know what, you know, Reggie actually applies to, is I, I even had a question, believe it or not, from my ex-wife asking, uh, hey, my boyfriend's had some fraud take place on his account and his bank is telling him he can't get his money back. And I asked her, well, why? And she gave me some time frames for when this is actually occurring. And it had been occurring over a year. It, it wasn't something that had just you know, recently happened when they went and investigated it. It had actually been taking place for over a year. And she was like, well, why can't he get it all back? So what, what is the time frame for a consumer? What should they be looking at when it comes to you know, an expectation of you should, I'm not going to say guarantee, but you should, if you meet the requirements and regulation, get your money back versus if it's taken place for too long, you may not. And I got to again say may not and be a little bit vague because sometimes the bank or the credit union may make a decision to give it back, but they don't have to necessarily. So what are those types of timeframes that consumers or, or banks working and credit unions working with consumers should look at? Well, first of all, I completely agree with you that there is absolutely nothing in the reg stopping a financial institution from doing something that is more consumer friendly than what the reg requires. Oftentimes, financial institutions will look at a transaction amount of an ACH or debit card POS transaction and they'll say, you know what, it's less than $25. And I'm strictly using that as an example, everyone. I'm not telling you that that's what your amount should be. But they might say, you know what, the transaction's less than $25. It may have happened, you know, X number of months or X number of days or weeks ago. We're not really going to take our time and dig deeply into uncovering whether it really was an unauthorized transaction or not, because frankly, my time is worth more than that totally up to each institution to determine and in fact potentially do something that's more consumer friendly. But if I go back to answering the question that you asked about the time frames, this is something that I get asked a lot. And I really, and again, this applies a lot more to a debit card transaction that might go on a recurring basis. I, I get mm -hmm. asked about that more. Not that it can't happen in the ACH. Maybe you signed up for some sort of a recurring payment service and it was an ACH rather than a debit card transaction. And it started happening a year or more ago and it just continued. The thing that kind of scares me, and this is probably going to give away my age a little bit, is how so many account holders in the U.S. today don't check their statements. I'm one of those people that just about every day I'm looking at my online banking system. What about you, Kevin? Do you look at your account? Oh, I'm an everyday checker. Kind of I mean, because, okay, let's, let's be full disclosure. I have business accounts that don't have Reg E protection, which require me to look at them much more often. But if I'm going to look at them and I have multiple bank accounts with multiple different banks and one credit union, I do check every day just because it's what I learned and I don't want to ever lose money, even though there's protection there. Yes, 
completely agree. So every time somebody brings a case to me and they want my help kind of determining consumer liability investigation requirements, and they talk to me about how far back that particular claim from the consumer goes, I just kind of go, oh my gosh, how can somebody not look at their account and not realize that they have transactions that are unauthorized as far as the consumer is concerned, they're unauthorized, that go back 18 months or heck, even longer than that. So to answer your question, what I have people do is, the, is look at the two different subsections of the reg that have a time frame that they need to be aware of, and I have them really separate them. And I'm not saying that they don't both apply. I'm just saying that when I look at the error resolution requirements, subsection 11 of the reg, there is a 60-day time frame in there where that subsection will apply. The error resolution requirements say that you must follow the provisions of that subsection for any transaction, any error claim that is brought to the attention of the account holding financial institution within 60 days of the date on which the transaction was was provided, you know, mailed, etc. So that 60-day time frame says that from today's date, if today's my statement date on a transaction, that I can go forward that 60 days, give or take, and that is my error resolution rights time frame in subsection 11. So the investigation provisions that are in that subsection are where a financial institution, and this should all be in their disclosures, right, Kevin? They mm -hmm, need to make mm -hmm. sure they disclose this in their, their uh, account disclosures, EFT disclosures, whatever they call it. But from the consumer's perspective, that's where they would find their investigation timeframes, the fact that you can complete your investigation within 10 business days, but you can take longer than that as long as you give provisional credit. You can require written confirmation of an oral notice of an error, and if you don't get it, then you're not required to give provisional credit. There's a 45-day timeframe maximum for certain types of transactions. For example, an ATM transaction. There is a 90-day length of investigation maximum time frame if it's a POS debit card transaction. So you really have to know those individual paragraphs in that subsection of the reg to understand as a financial institution, what are my time frames for the investigation piece? And don't that even hasn't gotten us started yet on subsection six, where we'll talk about the liability part, but I'll take a pause and I'll let you question me if you have more about that. All right. Error you did exactly what I hoped you would do, because I get that kind of a question a lot. And even with my my ex, I sat there, I was like, well, I need to know a few factors. I need to know, did this happen? Did that happen? I mean, there's other other extenuating things too, Big was the consumer out of country for an extended period of time when this took place. And, and pe people have asked these questions of me for years and are like, can't you just give me a straight answer? And I have to tell them, well, I am, but I need to know these circumstances. And like you said, you even referenced, there's two paragraphs in a federal regulation to help address the specific timeframes. But the key one being, check your statements, folks. All right, and, and for those of you who are doing error resolution, if it's within 60 days of the statement, more than likely you're gonna have reggae protection, but get training for people like Diana, that's gonna be able to help you to make sure you understand that you're doing the right things when it comes to working with these.
Now, something else, a question that comes up quite commonly in Reg E, I know it's gonna come up, especially with RTP and Zelle, cause I'm starting to hear it a lot. When we have a debit card, is there any liability to the consumer? Like if they have a loss, is the consumer liable for any of the money that's lost or are they gonna be fully protected? And so now you're leading me into subsection six, which is consumer's limit of liability provisions. But I want to circle back really quickly to something you said a bit ago about um, the, the error resolution procedures, because I do want to mention that there is a provision in there that talks about resolution or recredit, I guess, is really the best way to put it, without investigation. And so if a financial institution chooses to not have to dig deep into an investigation and just simply recredit the consumer, that's absolutely something they can do. All right, so to move then on to the consumer's liability, really it breaks down into is the unauthorized activity, which before that subsection is applicable, we have to first determine if the claim the error is making or the error claim that the consumer is making is actually meeting the definition of an error under the reg. And so if we go look at the definitions, subsection two of the definitions, there is a very specific definition of what it means to be an unauthorized EFT. And essentially, it talks about a transaction that the account holder, the consumer, did not engage in, did not give someone else permission to do. And I often will use myself as an example. I have teenagers. Uh -huh. And when they got to the point where they could drive, I was very sorry, financial institutions, but I was one of those bad card holders that I would literally give one of my teenage kids my debit card and I'd say, go to the grocery store because we need X or Y or Z for dinner. Go pick this up for me because I was either busy working or had some other reason why I wasn't able to do it myself. So in that instance, I gave them permission. That's not an unauthorized DFT. I gave my kids permission to use my card, meaning anything and everything that my kids did with my card was not an unauthorized EFT according to the definition of the reg. Do you agree? I do agree because you gave them what we know to be the access device that gives them access to being able to use the funds, move the funds around, all of that. Um, and so in that case, though, if what if your card's stolen? That's different, right? If your card's stolen, like, for example, my ex, she's going to probably kill me if she hears this and she does occasionally listen to these. Um, she gave one of our older sons a card to go use and he went to go buy some bread and he dropped the card on the ground as he was leaving the um, store, the grocery store. But I'm out traveling at this time because this was years ago and I'm out traveling. But when I got back, they tell me this story. But and they said, it's OK, because when he realized the card was gone, he went back to the grocery store and they had turned it into the lost and found. And so they're able to get the card back. Um, I think you know where this story is going because fraud started showing up because somebody obviously picked up the card, took pictures of it or something and started making you know transactions with it. Um, and I had to explain this one gets into that gray area because yes, you gave it to him to use, but then it was lost and it was actually lost, but then you got it back. So in that case, I know that I just opened up a huge can of worms there is a difference, though, is what I'm getting to and what you mentioned. 
between me giving the card to somebody and allowing them to use, again, my access device versus if it was truly compromised and lost, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, in the example that you gave, any transactions that your son legitimately did, whether it was for the intended purpose or not, in my opinion, does not fall into the unauthorized category. It was when those transactions were initiated by someone completely unknown to you, someone to whom you'd not given permission for that card. So if I were the card issuer in that situation, as soon as you notified me that there was some problem, which I would hope you would reach out and do that and say, hey, I had this situation. I'm not sure what you want to do. My advice to the issuing institution is to say, hey, let's go ahead and hot card that card. Let's make that card lost or stolen status. And let's give Kevin a brand new card number to start with so mm -hmm. that we don't have any fraud. Whether there had been fraud or not, I would have taken that action as the card issuer. Okay, well, now let me go because, you know, thinking on, on the card being the device that the fraud took place on, I want to flip it around a little bit because we talked about it does apply to our Zales, it does apply to our RTPs, it does apply even to our same day CH. Well, those things get initiated over a phone more than likely nowadays through an app. So if my phone's lost, my phone's temporarily taken away from me, I hear that one a lot. Um, I just set my phone <laughs> down and I came back and there are all these transactions taking place. Does that fall in the same category that they're still unauthorized, even though it was the phone and it was the phone was the compromised device that the unauthorized transactions took place on, even though I got it back later, the phone back. Yeah. And like you, like we said, this reg was written originally, you know, talking about an access device and a card and et cetera. It talks about a pin or a code. So there are lots of words in the reg to help define and help us understand what an access device is. And I can't say that I've ever read in the reg language or even in the staff interpretations that you'll find at the end, which are, are kind of uh, enhancing what the reg's language itself says. I can't say that I've read anything in there that literally addresses all the different types of devices that might happen. But we have digital wallets today, right? We have Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay. You know, I'm wearing an Apple Watch. So there are ways that our card or other account type of information, depending on what app or what service we're using, what products we're using from our financial institution, that allow electronic transactions to take place. It is not limited to just a physical plastic card because of all these other products and services. So as an institution, we have to understand that any of those electronic transactions that hit the account, whether the card is the problem or whether it's a phone that's a problem, it's all a way to access the account and do electronic transactions. And it all falls under the reg, assuming that the coverage we talked about at the beginning, consumer account, et cetera, apply. Yeah, and you do start at the beginning and it bleeds out in multiple directions from there. All right, one last question um, uh, coming up here. You mentioned the staff interpretation of Reg E, and one of the things I saw recently came out was some new guidance or a new FAQ from the CFPB, that's the Consumer um, Financial Protection Bureau, who has what control over or oversees Regulation E. Is there anything in that new guidance or that new FAQ that anybody should be, hey, you know, this is different or this has changed how we're looking at Reg E? As, as someone who has spent a lot of time reading the specific language that's in the reg itself, 
when I read those FAQs, they did not, to me, give any new information. I mean, it wasn't as if they were saying there were any changes to the reg or anything like that. So what happened in 2020? You know, obviously, we're all aware that at this moment in time, we're starting to come out of the whole COVID pandemic. Things are starting to open up. But if we think back to more than a year ago, when COVID first caused a lockdown within the United States, the globe for that matter, but when we think back to that time, what happened to transaction activity? And again, this is mostly in the debit card space, but as, as someone who's worked with debit cards a lot, I think we all know that in the financial institution community, we recognized early on that a lot of that volume of activity went online. So the volume of activity where we were doing card present transactions to face-to-face -face transactions really, really went down. And I think we were kind of headed that direction as a, as a country anyway in electronic payments, especially debit card payments. But of course, that just kind of, you know, took the, the you know, whatever you call it, the bar graph and went way, way, way up high very, very quickly in 2020. So when I look at fraud statistics and whether those are fraud statistics from Shazam card issuing financial institutions or MasterCard statistics or Visa, when I look at 2020's fraud picture and we look at the whole pie chart, we had a gigantic spike and a gigantic growth in that pie between 2019 and 2020 of card not present transactions. Well, if we break down that card not present activity, assuming that many, many, many other institutions in the U.S., even outside of the Shazam family of card issuers, if we look at that piece of the pie and we see that, in fact, individually looking at merchant category codes and looking at certain types of transactions, there was a lot of the card not present activity at the fintech apps or the third party apps that, that we kind of briefly touched on a little bit ago, mm -hmm. kind of the funds transfer services, P2P, et cetera. So to wrap up the answer to your question and circle back to that, what I feel like that Frequently Asked Questions was doing that the CFPB released a couple of weeks ago was simply taking that type of activity. And I'm sure they got a ton of those questions, right? I would imagine that because there was so much of a spike in that, it was really on everybody's minds. And so the financial institution community probably reached out to the CFPB a lot, looking for help, looking for guidance. You know, what about these third-party apps, the Venmos, the Cash apps, the Zells, like you say. And so then the CFPB felt like finally now at this point, halfway through 2021, they would come back and address that. So they weren't telling us anything new that we, that we shouldn't have already been aware of in the reg. They were reinforcing how those third parties fit in to that big picture. Excellent. Yeah, I got to agree a lot on that, too. And I do think everybody should go read it just to get refreshed. And, and I do have one last thing to ask. Um, you have had a very successful career. I mean, you're definitely somebody that I look to. If I got anything Reg E related, I'm going to ask you questions. And you said you've spent a lot of time reading these regulations, too. A lot of our listeners are somewhat new to the financial industry. Uh, they're working for fintechs, they're working for banks, they're working for credit unions. And I get asked a lot, well, how can I improve upon my career? What can I do to have a successful career in electronic payments? So what would you tell them? If you were to be a mentor, you were to give the advice to somebody who's new in this payments world or regulations world, there's compliance audit people out there too. 
what advice would you give them on this is what I did or what you should do to have a successful career? That is an interesting question because there was no internet when I started, or at least not in the state that it's in today. And so when people ask me that question in 2021, the first thing that comes to my mind is, I mean, a search engine, Google or whatever search engine you want to use. And I currently subscribe to a lot of newsletters. And I know people are going to say, oh my gosh, I subscribe to two newsletters and I get 25 emails a day. And when you attend a webinar, then your name gets on a list and it gets sold by that webinar host. I am of the mind that it is a whole lot easier for me to click delete in my email inbox and get rid of the junk that I don't care about and then just kind of filter out. And in fact, in my Outlook email inbox, I even have a little folder that I've created that's like my, you know, follow up to read list later. And I know in, in some browsers, you can actually mark that link or that website and you can add it to like a reading list that you want to do later. So that's just the first thing is, you know, seek out industry newsletters, whether they're electronic banking ones or whether they are uh, payments ones of all types or whether they are just the banking industry as a whole. Maybe it's a trade association for a bank or a credit union, a state trade association, a community bankers, a bankers, a credit union, etc. So find, you know, do a lot of searches, take five minutes, take 10 minutes and do a browser search and just type in certain keywords that are relevant to your job. And that's really more to me about payments. Now, of course, a lot of trade associations, the ABA, et cetera, I know they have, you know, bankers schools, NACHA has payments classes, they have the Payments Institute, they have an annual conference. I mean, education out there and not all of it you have to pay for you know there's a lot of education that is either very reasonable as a, a cost or there's free education reading an article subscribing to newsletters things like that so as someone who has experience in the industry the way that i keep up on new things emerging things you know the federal reserve when it comes to fed now they have a lot of different kind of town halls and webinar recordings that you can go and lists that you can get your on so that you get updates. NACHA has a rules update uh, email subscription list that you can do, do uh, so that every time there's rules news, they can send out an email to that. I could go on and on and on, but you have to be proactive about it, don't you think? You can't yes. just sit back and wait for somebody to come to you and knock you on the head and say, hey, learn this. You have to have that hunger and that thirst and that passion to learn it. Oh, I like that. Be proactive, have that hunger, have that thirst. Well, Diana, thank you so much for being on the payments podium here. If you guys want to be able to get a hold of Diana, Diana Kern, she's with Shazam. You'll find her on LinkedIn. You can go out there and start following her and be able to connect with her. If you see her name on an agenda at an upcoming conference or a webinar, and you're looking for the best in reggae education, I highly, highly, highly recommend her. Also, if there's a topic or maybe somebody you think that should be on the payments podium. Remember, you can always email me, kevin at paymentsprofessor.com. I'll do my best to find an industry expert out there from my network, or maybe even contact that expert that you call out that should be on the payments podium. We thank you for attending. And if you have any questions, you can always email me. Other than that, class dismissed. 
Thank you for listening to the Payments Podium Podcast. Check back every Thursday for a conversation with the Payments Professor. This podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Olson and edited by Sam Sue Smith. See you on Thursday.